Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a noise like a strong blowing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw something like flames of fire that were separated and stood over each person there. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in different languages by the power the Holy Spirit was giving them. There's little disagreement among scholars about what really happened here. The disagreement comes when they argue whether this experience is still relevant for today or not. So you have the separation within Christianity of what we would call the continuationists that believe that the Holy Spirit was poured out at that moment to signify a new era for the entire church or the cessationists who say, well, sure, we see what happened there. We don't dispute that, but it doesn't happen anymore. Now you know the difference between the two classes of people. We are Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God is the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world. We're not the largest in the United States. The Church of God in Christ, Kojic, is the largest Pentecostal denomination in the United States. We have sister denominations. The Four Square is a smaller denomination that believes very similarly, similarly to what we believe, Pentecostal denomination. The Open Bible Church is a smaller denomination, Pentecostal denomination. The Church of God, and there's several different strains of Church of God. Church of God, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee is the one I'm referring to that is a sister denomination to the Assemblies of God. Church of God, Anderson, Indiana is not a Pentecostal church. Church of God based out of Joplin, Missouri is. So there's a lot of different ones, but there's several different Pentecostal denominations. We all believe that the Holy Spirit was poured out then and is still poured out on people today, those who seek the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot of theological disagreement about the finer points of that. The Assemblies of God has historically taken the stance that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is signified by the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues, and they derive that from a few passages in the book of Acts, specifically starting with this one where they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all began to speak in different languages. And then there's other passages as well that lead us to believe in that theology that the tongues 
is the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But then you had the charismatic movement that came along several years ago. And that's where there was a wave of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that began to land in all kinds of different denominations that weren't expecting that to happen. And that was a fun era to watch. Catholic priests getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. Baptist ministers getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and asked to leave their church. People within the walls of various denominations who by and large were cessationists suddenly getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and some of them trying to stay in their church and sow some seed, uh, some of them finding it impossible to stay in their church and being asked to leave. And some of those left and started their own Bible study groups. But the charismatic movement, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, brought with it its own theology, uh, which they, many of them, did not believe that tongues was the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And many of them bore testimony saying, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, but I didn't speak in tongues until two years, three years later. So they, they weren't disputing the reality of speaking in tongues. They just said it didn't precede all the other gifts. It came along somewhere along the way. So you've got a, a, a large uh, variety of viewpoints on what happened with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The approach we're taking today is that this is still valid for today, that I'm not even going to get into trying to prove that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is evidenced by speaking in tongues. I'm going to lay that aside because that's not the most important thing to me today. The po most important thing to me today is, uh, are you aware of the ongoing experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is for believers today. Have you ever sought that experience? Have you ever been filled with the Spirit? Are you walking in the fullness of the Spirit? Those things I am more concerned about today than the finer points of the theology. Now, in that passage I read, there is an unquestionable manifestation of the Holy Spirit there on that day. As I have mentioned in a couple of sermons before, you have to try and imagine the frustration of these disciples being told to go wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power and them not having any clue what it's going to look, smell, taste like, feel like. They're just there waiting for something to happen. And they may have had uh, false flags along the way thinking well, this must be it and others disputing, no, I don't think that's it. But when the Holy Spirit was finally poured out, it was indisputable what happened. Not only did they have that inward emotional feeling and experience that something was empowering them, but they had outward signs that accompanied that, and it's a good thing they did because otherwise we would have a historical account of a bunch of people coming together and having just an inward feeling. And going away, say, we feel empowered. And can you imagine what kind of a mess that would make for the next 2,000 years? Everybody would go around saying, I feel empowered. But there was something that happened here along with physical manifestations that documented this was something that had happened that had never, ever happened before. 
In the history of all humanity, this had never happened. Now, the Holy Spirit had enabled people and empowered people in various degree, degrees and various ways. I'm amazed that the power of God worked through Old Testament believers who were not baptized in the Holy Spirit, but they, they raised dead people. They, they uh, performed miracles. There was a lot of things that happened in those instances from time to time demonstrating the power of God. But this was the beginning of a new era where Peter said, this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, not just a prophet here and there, but all flesh. And so a brand new era coming into the church. And if the disciples up to this point had any question about how they would know if they were truly endued with the power of the Holy Spirit, that question would be settled merely by the physical signs, the wind that went blowing through the place that was unique because it wasn't necessarily blowing through the city. It was blowing through the place where they were, but it wasn't blowing outside. It was a specific wind associated just with them in that place. And they noticed it, and they took... Uh, uh, note of it. It, it. it had to be just a special, limited, located wind right there because nobody would have bothered to write that the wind was blowing in Jerusalem that day. Well, so what? The wind blows in Jerusalem all the time. It's not a big deal. But when you got wind blowing in a room, a mighty rushing wind that's not blowing anywhere else, now you've got something to write about. And then for them to furthermore look around at everybody in this prayer meeting and say, do you realize you've got a jet of fire sitting on top of your head? Well, yeah, you do too. Well, look around, we all do. So you've got wind and you've got fire and you've got things going on that there's physical manifestations testifying to the presence of the Holy Spirit that day. Now, right there, let me pause Luke did not intend to make this application. I do. Just to make sure we understand this is not the context. This is where I'm going with this. Luke will pardon me, I'm sure. When I read this, that it was unmistakably the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit there. Unmistakably, the signs were there. The visible signs were there. That leads me to think about God being very clear and very definite in the way he communicates. Now, people, God does not have a problem communicating. God is not afraid to communicate. So when you see these charlatans on TV, wherever, that are playing this vague game about God speaking to them, and make no mistake about it, I do believe that God can speak to us. But when you see these vague people, these people on uh, wherever, on TV, playing this game about pretending they're hearing something from God, but they're not quite sure what it is, have you ever asked yourself, what is the problem that God cannot speak clearly to them? Have you ever thought about that, or did you just buy into that? I mean, I've seen them on TV uh, through, for years. I've seen them, and they say, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. God's God's telling me something. Uh, 
okay? It's, it, okay, there's, there's somebody here. Well, that, 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 now there's a point at start. There's somebody here, and uh, I, I, I can't, can't quite get the name. Is it, is it Gene or Jane or John or, and, you know, so God's not getting through to these people, right? Because God doesn't know how to talk to anybody, right? So God, uh, or these people are so, why would you trust them to hear anything from God? One of the two. And the, you've got an ache somewhere. Where is it? Is it, is it over on this side? Is it, you know, and they get somebody up there and they, they try to, and the, and the people are helping them along. Yeah, that's me. I'm Joe. Not Jim, Jane, John. I'm Joe. That's it. That's what I was trying to think. It was Joe. And you got a pain somewhere over here. No, it's on this side. Well, that's what I thought. And, and then, then the old one about somebody here. Come on, people, help me out. Somebody here has a pain in their back today. Now, you tell me, how many of you people there have a pain in your back today? Let me see your hands. You can't miss with that one. You just can't miss with it. I, now, you think I'm being rude? I don't mind being rude to those people that I consider pure charlatans. God does not have a problem communicating. But people will make fools out of other people pretending like they know God's speaking to them and here's what he's telling me. Well, listen, I'm, I'm so grateful that the, the prophets of the, uh, of the Bible who, who wrote the prophecies of God weren't that vague. They were specific in what God was saying. Aren't you glad they didn't have a problem hearing from God? We'd be a mess if we had to deal with those kind of prophecies and those kind of words from the Lord. If we're not sure if God is speaking to us or if we're getting false signals, be assured that when God speaks, he will remove all doubts. So if you think, I wonder if God's telling me this. God doesn't want you to be in doubt. That's not the kind of relationship he has with you. That's not the way he loves and cares for you. He if he wants to tell you something, he will make sure that you know. So you don't have to be in confusion and you don't have to be in doubt. He most emphatically does not want your relationship to be with, with him to be one of confusion. And I'm not sure what he's telling me. I think he's telling me this. You just better hold up until God speaks more clearly to you instead of trying to move forward on confusing information. The outward and visible manifestations of wind and fire along with... The sudden ability to speak in a foreign language all supported the inward work of the Holy Spirit and left no room for doubt. Now, let me talk to you about the significance of the wind and the fire. Wind and fire, if you would research that in your Bible studies, you find out are common symbols associated with the presence and the power and the spirit of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Just a couple of examples. Ezekiel observed a valley full of dry bones, and he prayed, breath of God, come breathe upon these slain. And the word, the Hebrew word for breath could easily be translated wind, the wind of God, the breath of God, or the life-giving force of God. So metaphorically, the wind of God blowing across that valley and bringing these bones back to life uh, just demonstrates 
my point that wind has commonly throughout the Bible in various parts of the Bible been associated with the presence and the power of God. And then the, the fire uh, obviously associated with the presence and the power of God. Uh, God accompanied Israel as a pillar of fire by night. It symbolized the presence of God. And Moses met God a couple of times, and there was fire involved when he got uh, confronted by God. Once when he was on the backside of the desert, and there was a burning bush, and uh, it was uh, symbolic of the fact God is here. And then going into the mountain that burns with fire, where Moses went up to get the commandments from God, it was, it was a, a, a terrible sight to behold, according to the writer of Hebrews. I exceeding fear and quake is what some of them said. And so the fire, once again, being significant of the presence and the power of God. So lo and behold, here on the day of Pentecost, two of these things that signifies and testifies to the presence of God here is wind and fire. It made biblical sense to these seekers in those days who were very well aware of those being uh, fitting symbols for the genuine presence and the power of God. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever heard the stories. I've never seen it happen, but I remember hearing the story from time to time. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. We heard all kinds of stories. But you know, the, the, the old Pentecostal churches, do you realize that they used to always, uh, I mean, so commonly be located down by the tracks? How many of you are aware of that? Pentecost Church, where is it in town? Down by the tracks. You know why? Because they didn't have any money, and the land down by the tracks was affordable. That's where they went and bought their land. That's where they put up their building. And so it was just normal for these blue-collar uh, workers and, and uh, um, average-class people, just that's where their church was. Now, how many of you have heard episodes, incidents of uh, the prayer meetings going on at these humble little places. And of course, there's no air conditioning in those days, so you can't contain the noise. You just entertain the entire neighborhood. Throw the windows open. Curi cu curious people could easily gather and lean in through the windows and watch what was going on because after all, this was, this was exciting stuff. You never knew what somebody was going to do in one of those meetings. But... The significant part is, is whenever the fire department's called out because the roof was on fire. And they got out there, there wasn't any fire there, but what was happening, they ever evidently were, were praying up some sort of a, a, a fire there of the power of the Holy Spirit because it, it, it happened more than once when people thought the building was on fire. It was just the power of God was present. It's significant also that the tongues of fire came and just wasn't one <clears throat> campfire in the middle of the room. The tongues of fire came and set upon each individual. Now, what's the significance of that? The significance is that when the presence of God accompanied Israel by this pillar of fire, this single pillar of fire, the power of God worked through Israel uh, as a group, corporately. They were a blessed nation. But the new era indicated that God was not going to have a corporate relationship with 
people anymore. It wasn't going to be because he blessed a nation. Now he's going to move into this new era where there's going to be a personal anointing, a personal empowerment. And this flame of fire resting on individuals meant it wasn't just because you belong to the country, the nation of Israel, that you would be blessed, you'd be blessed, you'd be empowered in a personal encounter and relationship with God. While the individual was more or less lost in that corporate setting in the Old Testament, now the corporate rises out of the Spirit-empowered individuals here today. So therefore, the church springs forth from the fact that individuals are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let's apply that for today. The church is the corporate entity, but God is not dealing with the church corporately. He's not just blessing the church. He's blessing the individuals who in, in, in uh, turn become the manifestation of the blessings of God in the church. God is at interacting with individuals who form the corporate body. In simple terms, hold on to your seats now. In simple terms, the spirit-filled church only exists when you have spirit-filled individuals. We are not a spirit-filled church because we are assemblies of God. We're not a spirit-filled church because we have doctrinal papers that talk about our belief in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we are not a spirit-filled church if we do not have spirit-filled individuals in the church moving in the spirit. Where are you in your experience in the Holy Spirit? Because we can talk about what we're supposed to be by denominational calling and association or by theology, what we believe should be happening. But the question that I pose is, are we really a spirit-filled church? And it wasn't enough just to provide wind and fire. But the wind and fire had no logical explanation other than the fact that they must have been supernatural. There was no other way to logically, scientifically explain why there is fire on top of everybody here. Supernatural manifestation. There was no way to scientifically explain a powerful wind that blew there, but blew no place else. No logical explanation for any of those things. But then you came to the tongues. And you can say the same thing about the tongues. There was no logical explanation for how this was happening and scripture bears out that there were witnesses there who heard these people speaking in tongues they were within earshot somehow and these people who bore witness to the fact that these disciples these Galileans and I'll come back to that in just a minute. But these Galileans, the Galileans, how is it that they are speaking in all of these languages? These witnesses came from what Luke said from his perspective all over the world. 
Now, you've got to understand within the context that the known world at that time was somewhat limited compared to our world today. But you get a few people from a few different nations wandering around there, and it would be logical for somebody to use the expression, they came from everywhere. They came from all over the world. So it's kind of a hyperbole, speaking maybe a little bit uh, extensively, expressively, but still not not stretching the truth by any, uh, by any means. So uh, Luke says they, they came from everywhere. And coming from everywhere, these were Jews who had grown up in different countries whose native tongue was now the, the, the tongue of a different nation. But they still could speak the, their native language, uh, Hebrew, as Jews, and they would uh, come back, or maybe they could speak Greek if they were within the, the, uh, uh, the Roman Empire. And so they're coming to town, some of them are bilingual, they bring their own native tongue or the tongue from their from their nation with them. They hear these people praying and hooting and hollering and making noise, and all of a sudden they begin to understand somebody, hey, that's our language. I hear somebody speaking in our language. Now, can you see the perfect timing and the design of God in all of this? When we consider that the foreigners just happened to be close by to witness the tongues being spoken by the disciples and those foreigners bearing witness to the genuineness of experience. What if this had not happened on the day of Pentecost? Why were those foreigners there? Because it was the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish feast. And when Jewish feasts happen, good loyal Jews would return to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast, regardless of what that feast was, be it the Feast of Passover or the Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Pentecost. When a feast happened, people made their pilgrimage and came back. So what if the outpouring of the Holy Spirit had happened when there was no feast and there were no foreigners around and they were speaking in tongues? We would not have this account. But you see the hand of God in bringing everything together in perfect time timing. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, of course, this all corresponds with all the Jewish feasts. In Jesus, uh, on, on the day of the Passover being sacrificed as that lamb had historically been done throughout the entire Old Testament. And Jesus on the day of the feast of the first fruits. Well, he is the first fruits of all that uh, 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 sleep in God. He is the first to come forth. So all of these things that are happening are in perfect alignment with the Jewish feast to, to show, to demonstrate. These are the fulfillment of the centuries of those feasts. And then 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost when they would have been celebrating for totally other reasons that's the day when the Holy Spirit came that's the day when the foreigners were there that's the day when they began to speak in other tongues that's the day when the foreigners heard them and said we hear them speaking in tongues and that's the perfect timing of God God says I love it when a plan comes together and these foreigners say did you hear that I hear them speaking in our language. Now, do you think we would have gotten that good of a testimony and reinforcement if the foreigners had not been there? No, because I'm going to take the foreigners out of the story, and I'm going to show you what the locals did. The locals heard them, and they said, huh, sounds like there's a drunken party going on over there. 
Sounds, here it is, uh, early in the morning, and these people are babbling like a bunch of fools or just a bunch of drunks. That's what the rest of the world said. They had to have the foreigners there to bear testimony, saying, this is not gibberish. This is my own language. I hear it. I understand it. And we still have testimonies like that even in modern Pentecost. When somebody may happen to be in a Pentecostal service, and somebody may give a message in tongues. And there have been documented cases of somebody rushing up to them and saying, I'm so glad to find somebody else here that speaks my native tongue. And the person who gave the message in tongues, what are you talking about? Well, I heard you. I heard what you said. And they said, I, I, that, was, that was the power of God. I do not speak that language. Those are the kind of things that when people have questions and they say, is this really real here today? Is there really the power of the Holy Spirit? Is tongues really real? Well, I've got, I've got a twofold answer for that. Yes, the experience is genuine. Yes, it is the miracle power of God. And no, there are a lot of times when there's a lot of noise going on that people pretends is tongues and it's not. And you have to be wise enough to separate that out. There's a lot of things that go on in the church that just because it's in the church doesn't mean it was automatically genuine. You have to have a little discernment to know if we're just playing games here and trying to get some attention. Uh, there was a pastor in one of our uh, discussion groups the other day that said that this has been going on. He said, I've been pastor here for seven years and it's been going on for seven years every Sunday. There is a man that gives a message in tongues, and his wife gives the interpretation. It is the same message every Sunday. He said, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do about this. He said, I, it's, it's, it's predictable. You can set your watch by it. You know, you got uh, three songs, take up offering, and now it's time for our message in tongues. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Anytime there is the flow of God, there is always something coming along that's a counterfeit that's going to try and discredit what is real. Just mark it. It does happen. But is our tongues legitimate for today? Well, when, you, when you've got these testimonies of people who heard them in their own language, just like they did there on that day of Pentecost, how in the world do you dispute that and yes it is for today and another significance of the tongues is not only for bearing witness to what was happening that day but another implication is that when these people heard in their own language there's something symbolic about that the symbolism there is that the tongues were related to the Great Commission to be able to take the message of God to everybody in the world. That's a little microcosm of the Great Commission. The very first thing that happened with tongues is somebody from another language heard the good news. And that was going to happen on a larger and larger scale. So it was indicative of what the tongues was really all about. The tongues was to, to bear witness to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit was to empower people to do what? To be a witness. Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, 
and not to all the parts of the world. So it started right there on that day when symbolically in that small microcosm, foreigners began to hear the good news. It's unfortunate, as I try to give a balance to this message, that sometimes in Pentecostal churches, we begin to value the gift of tongues more as just a, a gift for the church to play with and to utilize within the body than as originally as the evidence of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that prepares us to evangelize the world. And it, it hurts me to have to say that, but I have to be honest. We can't cover up our warts. I, I've known, I've been in ministry for long enough I've been in ministry, I've been 65 years old, I've been in ministry for 50 of those years. I've seen an awful lot. I've seen people who were the prominent tongue talkers in their church. That outside of church, they were as mean as junkyard dogs. Don't tell me they were filled with the Spirit. I know better. Just because somebody can rattle something you can't understand doesn't mean I'm going to hold them up as being super spiritual people because if they don't carry the fruit of the Spirit outside of this place where they are being noticed for how spiritual they are, I don't buy it. And somehow, sadly enough, somehow we have come to the place in church where there has developed this awful, regrettable disconnect between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. That should never be. If we're going to talk about how much power we have and the gifts of the Spirit, there should automatically be the fruit of the Spirit in those people's lives. Love, joy, and peace, and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and what? Temperance. Thank you. Not that I didn't know it. <laughs> and if those things are missing, you might as well just say like Paul did, though I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not love, I am become like a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. It's just so much white noise until it's empowered by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Breaking down walls of separation. One of the major teaching points that Jesus had in his ministry is he didn't like this idea of having this division in his followers. He wanted them to be united together. He hammered that into his disciples how important unity was. And that principle of unity was for more than just making his disciples get along with one another. It was an ideal that would undergird their message to the world. Unquestionably, the primary message was about Jesus, his atoning sacrifice, and, and his resurrection, which guaranteed everything he promised. But the element of unity was a necessary part of that message that Jesus has come ideally to try to bring things together. But Jesus admitted that my presence tends to bring a lot of division. is because the attitudes that people had about him, not because he wanted to divide them. 
But people would be divided because of him because of what he was presenting was so highly controversial. But his desire was, Father, make them one like you and I are one. The message of the gospel is intended to unite. It crosses all earthly barriers. It transcends all man-made boundaries. And it's designed to unite the world in one faith. And that was foreshadowed on that day of Pentecost as seen in this passage. There were some religious Jews staying in Jerusalem who were from every country in the world. When they heard this noise, a crowd came together. And they were all surprised because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were completely amazed at this. And they said, look, aren't all these people that we hear speaking from Galilee? That was a pejorative term. That was a term that designated these people as lower class. They asked the question, aren't these people that are speaking those people? You know what I mean? Those people, Galileans, were surprised that this is Galileans. And what we're referring to here is you're beginning to see God dip into the mass of humanity and take even those who are despised and move them up to the forefront. And God said, we're going to mix it all up. So we're not going to have this separation of classes anymore. We're no longer going to have the upper crust over here and the lower people here, the upper crust. And have, we're going to mix this all together so that coming out of all these varieties, we've got one new man. God wants us to be all united together. He doesn't want the divisions that exist in the church. Crossing over social stratus lines. Crossing over... racial divisions, crossing over language barriers and bringing them all together. And so it starts off with the hope and the promise that we're going to preach a gospel that are going to unite everybody together. And that principle is abundantly of, of uni uniting together is so abundant in the life of Jesus. He came into this world in humble circumstances to demonstrate that he he can he can come in as the lowly, as the as the outcast, as the despised. He chose common laborers for his team. He bypassed self-important people and ministered to the poor and the lowly and the forgotten. His mission was to call was and calling was to the poor, the captives, the bruised, the abused, the outcasts of society, trying to bring them up and unite everybody together. And it's sad that the church has managed over the past 2,000 years to separate again into our social classes. You have one church that is a blue-collar church. You have another prosperous church with multi-million dollar buildings. And you have the struggling church in the poor part of town. And the people tend to gather in the churches that fit their social status. You don't often see the poor worshiping together with the rich. You don't often see a church that looks like heaven where somebody from every race, from every class, from every status, all together as one in Christ. Why are we so separated? Why are we so divided? Don't think for one minute that what has happened in the, mo in the modern church is what God ever intended. 
one of the first things we learn from this is that outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is God does not recognize and does not legitimize class structures. If he poured out his spirit on Galileans, he sent a powerful and clear message. This church needs to get over class division. And Pentecost, have you ever thought about, was the reversal of something that had happened many years prior, thousands of years prior. As and it's a, it's a strange uh, contrast between what happened there at the Tower of Babel where the thing that offended God was they're all beginning to think like one people. Therefore, I think I'll divide them up and keep them from doing that. Then on the day of Pentecost, it was all about bringing people together to be as one people. Now, how is it that God got offended because they started to think like one person then? All together, all in agreement, and he divided them. But here they are, he's trying to bring them back together and unite them. Because when they were thinking like one back then, they were thinking about doing some naughty things. And God said, if you get together and you start thinking like one person and you can't do anything better than that, I'm done with you. So it's not just unity, it's unity in the faith. And after having been divided at that tower in Babel, here we come to the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit coming down and what divided people then now is coming to unite people. And whenever they were at the Tower of Babel, they were divided and they all began to speak in tongues. They couldn't understand each other. But here when the Holy Spirit fell and they began to speak in tongues, they could understand one another clearly. So there's such a contrast and a, a convenient comparison between the two events. Pentecost undid the damage that was done at Babel and gave us a brand new start. Third point, the scripture says, but we hear them telling in our own languages about the great things God has done. See, they weren't just rattling nonsense in foreign languages. They described what they were hearing. We hear them telling about the great things God has done. They were preaching. They were testifying in foreign languages. And these people said, we can hear it. And they were all amazed and they were confused. And they were asking each other, what does this mean? And others were mocking them, saying they had too much wine with the evidence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit confusing some foreigners they just didn't understand what it meant and then the skeptics nearby making fun of them and mocking them at one level we might struggle to try and understand how such a clear and powerful demonstration of the power of God could fail to convince everyone but if we had a demonstration of the power of God today, if we had somebody raised from the dead, don't think for one minute, everybody's going to be convinced. What we learn from this is there are going to be skeptics. No matter what happens, you're always going to have skeptics. Every chapter in the book of Acts with these exceptions, chapters 3 and 10. And chapter 3 is a part of chapter 4 where we find what I'm going to tell you. Chapter 10 is a part of chapter 11. So every chapter in the book of Acts has a move of God associated with an immediate follow-up of skeptics 
who don't believe it. Acts is a manual on be prepared for people not believing you. No matter what kind of miracles are performed, no matter if they escape from prison miraculously as they do in, in Acts, no matter if demons are cast out, just be prepared. Somebody is still going to be skeptical. It's a theme of Acts. We should anticipate rejection. It's normal. If you believe in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit today, just accept the fact some people think you're crazy. It will be rejected by some. It's just normal. It's a part of it. If you want to witness to others, you're going to face rejection by some. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was rejected by scoffers and skeptics at the initial outpouring. It should be no surprise to us. It still is being rejected today. Final point. Peter quoted from Joel, Old Testament prophet. And he explained this strange phenomenon that indicated that God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And it would include the days preceding the coming of the Lord. Peter, with not a great deal of theological training, yet filled with the Spirit now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, begins to have clarity about what this all means. Remember I told you how much time Jesus spent getting them theologically ready, training them for the coming revival, and the training is paying off for Peter now, listening to the Spirit, listening to God, having perception and understanding that goes beyond just human reasoning so he he sees what's happening here and it just comes to his mind he said that this this is the fulfillment of an old testament scripture and he got up and he said now listen to it. i won't explain what's going on this is that which is spoken of by the prophet joel how many years ago in the last days i'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh and he began to make this explanation he said your sons and your daughters will prophesy Young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. Now, let me just pause there for a minute. Those are just general, broad sayings. They are indicative of being all kinds of different people. So if you've been in Pentecostal churches very long, you've probably heard somebody try to make too much of a detailed explanation that uh, if, if, if you're a, a young man, you have to see visions. If you're old men, you will dream dreams. And the two cannot cross that's not at all what joel is trying to say stop nitpicking i mean what he's trying to say is in a general sense he's just giving examples it could be old men having visions and young men having dreams it's it's okay it does not violate scripture and on your handmaids and your servants on that day where i'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Well, they might do more than prophesy. It's just general. But what he's trying to say is the cross-section of humanity is going to experience this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he says, at that time, I will pour out my spirit also on my male slaves and female slaves, and they will prophesy. And I will show miracles. If you kind of jump in calendar time, I will show miracles in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, thick smoke, and the sun will come dark, and the moon is red as blood before the overwhelming and glorious day of the Lord will come. And how many of you are familiar with any passage of Scripture about the sun turning black, black as sackcloth of hair, the moon turning to blood? Uh, wasn't that in the prophecy of Jesus? 
It wasn't that in the 24th chapter of Matthew? Wasn't that uh, where Jesus is saying in the last days that these things are going to happen? So see, right there, Peter has interpreted Joel as saying, not only is this the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but also in the last days when all of these great signs are going to happen just before his coming, there's also going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then, anyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. And not only did Peter and Joel validate the latter-day outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they also indicated it would bridge across all class divisions, male and female and old and young. It didn't make any difference. I'm going to pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. It's for us today. If we're going to be a Spirit-filled church, we have to be Spirit-filled people. If we're seriously going to help fulfill the Great Commission, we don't need a four-week training class. We need time around the altar. We need to be filled with the Spirit.